welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Madden America podcast. This is your host for today, Ayurdhidhar. I am an assistant professor of psychology at Mount Mary University and a spotlight interviewer for Madden America. Today's episode is special as it is coordinated from different parts of the world, three different parts of the world, actually. I'm currently visiting my family in India. Uh, our producer, James, is joining us from the UK. And of course, our guest for today, Dr. Bruce Cohen, is in New Zealand. So about Dr. Cohen, he is an associate professor of sociology in the University of Auckland. He has over three decades of experience in numerous topics, some of which are service user meanings of illness, alternatives to psychiatric hospitalization, and a lot more. Um, but today, today, we will kind of focus on a couple of his other works, um, especially his works that are on critical perspectives of psychiatry. So, uh, most notably, his book, Psychiatric Hegemony, his new book series called The Politics of Mental Health and Illness, and of course, the book that I'm very excited about, Selling Mental Health. So, Dr. Cohen, welcome to Mad in America. Kiona, uh, thanks for having me. Um, let's dig in with the first question. You have explored various criticisms of the side disciplines across numerous sectors. And, you know, we will cover some of them in the interview. Uh, but I want to know first that what brought you to them? And when did you and how did you end up seeing these glaring problems? Um, so was there like one particular moment or it was a slow disillusionment? How did that happen? <laughs> well, I'm a sociologist, so uh, I think uh, disillusionment is uh, is what actually pays the bills for us. Uh, I can go all the way back to uh, the early 1990s. Um, I was uh, an undergraduate at the University of Teesside, still doing my sociology degree then. As my first um, research uh, gig, this was at the time of uh, community care. In the UK, um, the uh, psychiatric institutions were closing down, and um, I had the chance to do some interviews with um, users, survivors of the psychiatric uh, hospital system. And this took place, uh, by the way, in Hartlepool. This was uh, research funded by the local health um, authority. Uh, and so we had a number of partners uh, that we had to check in with um, before we went out and did this research. And I remember distinctly uh, going to see um, a psychiatrist uh, there as part of this uh, team uh, who was um, you know, consulting with us about the research we were doing there. One I specifically remember about the psychiatrist, the first kind of experience I'd had of meeting a psychiatrist uh, in my life um, was we mentioned the research and about how obviously we were going to look at like the needs of the users uh, in the community beyond the asylum system and the psychiatrist said to us point blank there's no point in asking them what they want you know they're all mad you know how are you going to get anything articulate out of this population this was my first uh, but not my last experience of the arrogance and the ignorance of the psychiatric profession. One of the interesting things when we went out to actually uh, do these interviews with users, survivors, was one of, one of the first things they told us was we were never listened to by the psychiatrists, by the mental health nurses in the system. You know, our, basically they ignored our voices, they avoided us on the wards. Um, and of course, we learned about things that were typical of the inpatient experience that we know from from Goffman and Rosenhan's work and so forth, um, as such as, you know, the hubris of the professional staff there, um, the use of medication, ZCT, solitary confinement as forms of sedation and of punishment sometimes of inpatients. The paths that led uh, users into institution of sometimes personal problems, sometimes family issues, included the sectioning of people against their will into these places. And of course, the rarity of also being able to get out of these places. And 
you know, a lot of them only getting out of the place because the place was closing. Um, so, so that was a really interesting and informative experience uh, for me. And, and I think to add to that a few years later, and I ended up doing an evaluation uh, project uh, on a uh, home treatment service. Uh, this um, service was an alternative to inpatient care for acute or severe mentally ill people. So that's people who were diagnosed with some sort of psychosis like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. And so basically this, Brad this Bradford home treatment team would take People who would usually have a crisis and would go into the, in, into the hospital uh, actually keep them at home. And instead, the workers would come round and actually see them. This was um, uh, a team that was, uh, it was a dynamic team um, set up by uh, Pat Bracken and, and Phil Thomas. Uh, they're part of the Critical Psychiatric Network in uh, the UK. And they've written books on uh, post-psychiatry. And... What was fascinating about this team was they really questioned the ways that uh, psychiatry had previously worked with uh, these uh, users. They were fundamentally also, I think, uh, challenging their own knowledge base, psychiatric knowledge base. You know, for instance, like what they'd um, discuss in the team meetings was like, should we still be using psychiatric labels uh, with these people? Should we still be just maintaining their medications or should we actually be really uh, encouraged in them to reduce them because of, you know, the problems that, of course, as we know, many of the antipsychotics and antidepressants can cause, you know, uh, the use of ECT, should we encourage it, should we discourage it? Um, it became quite an interesting thing to see a team of um, obviously psychiatrically uh, trained uh, nurses and doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, actually, uh, in a way, be emancipated to do something different. Um, and I think it was really attractive for people who were working in that team. And, and some some of it I remember was, um, uh, you know, the the, um, the team office um, uh, had copies of these books, such as uh, Peter Breggin's Toxic Psychiatry and Jeffrey Mason's Against Therapy books. Um, you know, still quite radical texts. And, you know, this, the, this was like, fascinating for me as a sociologist. Uh, and I think with my background, seeing that, you know, there was a potential for the mental health system to be something different from what it had been previously. And since then, of course, there's been home treatments uh, services set up across the country and uh, uh, many other places. Um, so it was this challenging of the orthodoxy by Pat and Phil, which was very interesting to me. But I guess the last part of that is um, led to my my uh, book uh, out of my PhD on mental health user narratives. And, you know, this is very much influenced by Arthur Kleinman's work on illness narratives. Um, and part of what I did was really kind of have open interviews with um, both those who are using the home treatment service as an alternative to inpatient treatment, as well as those who only had had inpatient treatment. And it was really a kind of looking at user uh, identities and life worlds and experiences. With both sets of users, there was um, a psychiatric discourse that was very powerful in um, their identities and in explaining their situation and their future in terms of uh, mental illness and recovery from mental illness. For instance, hospital-only users would really follow a biomedical discourse. So, um, for instance, they talk about, you know, I've got schizophrenia. Uh, it's a lifelong disease of the brain. It's in the genes. Uh, medications can only control the worst excesses of the disease. Uh, relapse is bound to occur. Uh, and, you know, I feel that I will require further inpatient treatment in the future for the rest of my life. Whereas like with the home treatment users with this more kind of social critical engagement from Pat's team, um, there was a downgrading of diagnosis. You have to remember all these people were, were considered acute and severe um, mental health users. But they downgraded their own diagnosis and they were saying, 
I think I had more of a depression, really, or, you know, it was a neurosis or it was, it was a crisis that happened due to social and environmental reasons. It's a one-off. I don't think it's going to happen again. Well, that's, that's generalizing, but that was often the narrative that we got from those users. So they had this more emancipated, like the team we're working with these users, more of an emancipated idea of the possibility to live in without any further need for contact from mental health services, which is all really great. But what I, what I took up from that was um, the psychiatric discourse, the psychiatric language, the practices, the treatments, these can all have a significant impact on our identities and our understanding of ourselves. And that really led me to the psychiatric hegemony in the later works. Thank you for that. So you write that psychiatric discourse has become hegemonic. Could you tell us what it means and what are some of the consequences of this happening? Sure. Well, I mean, in a nutshell, hegemonic means that the psychiatric discourse is now everywhere. This uh, idea comes from the cultural Marxist Antonio Gramsci, He's an Italian Marxist in the 1930s. Um, basically, it means ruled by consent. Uh, and uh, I think the Marxist concept is it's ruled by induced consent. So what this is, is a more subtle form of power uh, than actually direct control. Imagine direct control as being actually physical force from an army or a police force or something. So hegemonic uh, control is something actually more subtle than that. Um, for me, it's the ideas of the dominant norms and values of the economic elites in capitalist society are actually proliferated through um, what are considered non-political institutions, public institutions such as the education system or the criminal justice system or medicine, and in this case, the mental health system. Um, so these ideas are communicated to us as being common sense and taken for granted ideas of how society should then function. For instance, we'll come back to this, I'm sure, gender roles. Uh, you know, what exactly is a man's role and a woman's role? And, uh, you know, the uh, policing of the binary uh, within the genders on that issue. So psychiatric discourse, I argue in the book, has, has proliferated. Um, it's left the confines of the psychiatric hospital and the therapist office. And now it's present in our everyday lives, um, in schools, in our workplaces, in unemployment centers, in the home. It's constantly, of course, in the media and it's on social media. Um, it's a regular feature of our day-to-day -day conversations with one another. And, and I find this fascinating that how often I am having conversations day-to-day -day about mental health. And I think, to a greater or lesser extent, we all are. Um, you know, previously, discussion of mental illness amongst the general public was really pretty rare. Um, and it's harder for a young audience probably to understand this. Um, now it's very much commonplace. So, so now it seems like we can all name, for instance, a few mental disorders like social anxiety disorder or autism, PTSD, or borderline personality disorder or bipolar disorder and so on. Uh, most of us maybe can name some symptoms for these conditions, uh, even suggest uh, causation for them. For example, it's a brain disease or it's chemical imbalances in the brain or it's due to trauma etc and some of us can probably uh, also name typical medications uh, and other other treatments for those disorders so for me as an academic and now at the university of auckland for the last 15 years actually my research has really been primarily concerned with answering this question as to why psychiatric discourse has become hegemonic uh, across western society one of the obvious ones is like maybe more of us are mentally ill than ever before but that's incorrect there, there is, um, of course, evidence that rates of mental illness have gone up, uh, but they're problematic. So 
Uh, Robert Whittaker uh, has noted that using the marker of people in the US who are disabled by mental illness, um, that figure went up pretty pretty big uh, between 1987 and 2007. So it doubled uh, during that period. Um, and for children, it went up 35 times, which is incredible, still an incredible figure. Um, but the problem is, of course, you've got the number of mental illnesses present in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. That's the American Psychiatric Association's uh, Bible, a medical manual tells you what's a mental disorder and what's not. And each edition, the mental illnesses have gone up. We had 106 uh, in 1952. We now have 374 today. Other scholars will tell you that many of these classifications have also become much more fluid. That is the symptoms required to actually reach uh, the point in which you have a disorder, depression or whatever, has been reduced over time. So, for instance, the DSM removing the exclusion criteria for major depression for uh, bereavement following the death of a loved one is an obvious example. So, so that's kind of problematic in measuring has mental illness gone up, so ha are more of us pathological now? Um, an interesting bit of research, and there are other, other pieces out there, but not much, strangely enough, um, is Amy Johnson's article um, she did um, last year. It's analysis of US national health interview survey data. It's quite a big sample. And she did this between 1997 and 2007. And she uses psychological distress, which is constant over this. And it asks people, uh, you know, how much uh, are you kind of, uh, you know, are you worried, etc., about these issues? And, and what she concluded is that there's really little evidence that psychological distress has actually worsened over time. And I think that's a really big sop to all those issues about the rates of mental illness are increasing, etc. Lots of problems with the measurements, which I'm sure many of you listeners know already. Um, another issue, well, has not psychiatric science simply improved uh, and got better over time? Aren't, aren't the treatments now safer and more advanced than they ever were? Um, well, you know, lots of people, including Whitaker and Cosgrove and myself and other people, have talked about the ongoing validity problems with the science uh, in actually accurately defining, measuring and explaining mental illness. Just one example uh, recently is that uh, Allsop and colleagues looked at the major diagnostic categories, which included depression and anxiety disorders uh, in the current DSM. And they concluded that all the categories were scientifically worthless as tools to identify discrete mental disorders. In terms of medications, obviously, there's Irving Kirsch's work and others that point to the, the problematic conclusions of most antidepressants, antipsychotics being no more effective if they are as effective as placebo. The, uh, the wonderful historian, sociologist, Andrew Skull, concludes that the causation of most mental illness remains obscure and its treatments are largely symptomatic and generally of dubious efficacy. So, so what's my answer, I think, to this, uh, this issue then? Uh, why it seems that psychiatric discourse has become hegemonic? I believe that what psychiatry has done has learned to speak the public language since the 1980s. Now, now, what do I mean by this? Speaking all the way back in 1965, uh, Mike Gorman uh, addressed the American Psychiatric Association then, and he said, psychiatry must develop this public language. Uh, it must be decontaminated of jargon, and it must be suited to discussion of universal problems of our society. You know, this is the difficult task that we face in psychiatry, but it must be done if psychiatry is to be heard in the civic halls of our nation. So, 
what we now recognize as our emotions, feelings, and behaviors in the more recent DSM diagnostic classifications that have been produced, these are now considered common mental disorders. And they now speak or reflect our concerns, our anxieties, living in late capitalist society. So, for instance, you will see things in spread out through these uh, these diagnostic classifications um, that speak to our anxieties about not multitasking effectively enough. You know, we're not working or studying hard enough. We're not happy with our work-life balance. We feel that we're maybe ineffective parents or carers. You know, our sex lives are a mess. We are maybe gaming or drinking or smoking too much, etc. These are all within now these uh, common mental illness categories. So, my argument is in this way, psychiatric hegemony has actually successfully medicalized more and more aspects of our everyday lives. And this discourse has then become totalizing. Uh, you know, I mean, some people might say this is a great thing. You know, this this is fantastic. This can really help us because like, I have recognition that actually I just thought I was feeling lazy or I was self-obsessed. And then I got diagnosed as you know, ADHD or whatever, insert your label here. Um, so this is an explanation for many, and many are relieved. They're often grateful for these classifications. But these are not mental disorders. My, my argument obviously follows Gramsci in that psychiatric discourse is, and always has been, a form of social control, which actually works to the benefit of capitalism. It doesn't work for us. So... With the advent of a neoliberal ideology in the 1980s, uh, a discourse that focuses more on the individual for reform, change of character, for improvement of ourselves, um, this discourse has become increasingly important. So rather than the discourse is somehow neutral or value-free, uh, it actually uh, reflects a dominant ideological rhetoric that speaks to a specific epoch and has done since psychiatry has been around in industrial society. Which diagnoses, more than any other probably, betrays psychology's ties to neoliberal capitalism? If you had to pick like a couple of ones that you think these are the ones that reflect these insidious ties between neoliberal capitalism and side disciplines, what would it be? Yeah, I think um, the most obvious one for me is ADHD, and it's also one that I'm sure many listeners can relate to. Um, I think most people know or have heard of ADHD. It's Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Uh, it was previously uh, Attention Deficit Disorder. Uh, before that, it was hyperkinesis, and before that, it was various terms like minimal brain dysfunction. Uh, we see a bit of expansion of categories here over time uh, in the DSM. Briefly, uh, in, in the 1970s, um, there's significant shifts that take place in Western society and in the Western uh, economies. Uh, of course, there's deindustrialization, there's the rise of service industries, there's a collapse of welfareism, there's a rise of neoliberal politics and neopolitics that are concerned not only to deregulate the market. Uh, take it out of state hands, you know, cut down on actually the laws that are around what the market can do, but also sell off public industries, make cuts in welfare services and provision, and force the general popula population to, more, to rely more and more over time on themselves rather than the state to have to upscale, to have to work on themselves and, and so forth. So, in a nutshell, how does ADHD fit into this? Well, the education system and the work environment, amongst others, have, have to change. And they change towards more seat work, more intensive um, study, more analytical uh, sets of skills, more flexible skills for the service economy, um, more IT skills, and so on. Um, and we can see this in the way ADHD actually changes. First of all, focused on young people and then latterly on adults as well. 
So young people at school and then adults more in the workplace. And actually, um, the uh, whereas hyperkinesis in the 1950s to 1970s was really uh, seen as a rare condition amongst primary school children, um, ADHD um, that first appears as ADD uh, in the in the third edition of the DSM in 1980, uh, it's really based, as Graham and others have said, on the changing demands of schooling uh, at that time. So, for instance, um, uh, people might not know what the uh, specific criteria for for uh, ADD and then ADHD uh, is, but it's always worth having a look at the DSM because it's a fascinating document. Um, in the DSM-3, it had things like inattention caused by failing to finish uh, things he or she starts, often not listening, easily distracted, having, con having difficulty concentrating on schoolwork or other tasks required, uh, difficulty sticking to a play activity. These are all things directly related, obviously, to the classroom and to the school. Impulsivity, frequently calls out in class, needs a lot of supervision, uh, has difficulty organizing one's work, runs around or climbs on things excessively. As a young person, why would they do that? Uh, difficult to sit still or fidget excessively, has difficulty staying seated, um, is always on the go or acts as if driven by a motor. So you have these uh, things that develop uh, in the DSM over time, but more and more it starts to not only talk about losing homework, losing pens, etc. It actually moves into the adult world of work. We've seen that uh, one of the problems for capitalism, a great problem uh, in the, since the 1990s, has really been, uh, as, as William Davies has talked about, the, uh, the active worker disengagement in the workforce. That's ideas of uh, manifesting through absenteeism or sickness. You know, now you have it in the latest uh, version of ADHD. You've you've got quite blatantly they've just added lots of stuff onto schoolwork to make it your occupation and at work as well. So it's been a really uh, you know obviously that's expanded the numbers that can be caught in the category. So adults, of course, we we now hear about adult ADHD all the time as well as uh, even though there's no official category of adult ADHD. Um, now we see it, for instance, um, the person will often fail to give close attention to details or make careless mistakes in schoolwork, but at work or during other t activities as well. You know, they miss or they overlook details. Their work is inaccurate and, and so forth. And there's many, there's many points at which you can see this is just like what the, <laughs> all the uh, symptoms they had for young people, but now they've added poor time management, fails to meet deadlines at work. These are all symptoms of mental disorder. That's the really fascinating thing about this. You know, for older adolescents and adults, you know, actually avoids dislikes or is reluctant to engage and complete tasks like preparing reports, completing forms, reviewing lengthy papers, often loses things necessary for tasks such as school materials, pencils, books, wallets, keys, paperwork, eyeglasses, mobile phones, is forgetful in those daily activities, doing chores, running er errands, returning calls, paying bills, keeping appointments. So if you're not paying your bills on time, you're not keeping appointments, you could have ADHD. So, you know, Pia, Pia Conrad, who's a really uh, great uh, sociologist uh, looking at medicalization many years um, and he previously described hyperkinesis as the medicalization of deviant behavior um, you know unruly kids at school and so forth um, but more recently he's actually talked about uh, uh, the modern form of ADHD as the medicalization of under productivity so um, a couple of examples I actually had on this myself from my uh, my experience at the university. Um, you know, this is a regular one: uh, requests for student extensions. You know, of course, now there's a, there's a lot that are related to my mental health issues, etc. Um, most often, I've seen recently this mental illness uh, has been ADHD. I, I've had um, uh, I had an academic colleague of mine. 
uh, who uh, was really concerned about the workload that we now have in academia. And you will know <laughs> that, you know, we have a mountain uh, and a mountain rate of uh, work to do, admin, service, duties, as well as our teaching, and of course, publish or die responsibilities. And, and you know, I had a colleague, and he's not the only one, I'm sure, who was saying, I'm not effective enough in multitasking, I'm not getting enough done. And it has a very kind of like a reflective, critical attitude towards the mental health system and stuff like that. But at the same time, was actually relieved to get the diagnosis of ADHD. So, you know, get the actual uh, access to Adderall or Ritalin and could uh, now perform more on speed, etc. <laughs> Which is, uh, you know, of course, uh, the major component of Adderall and Ritalin. So I was just going to conclude, obviously, that, you know, these are issues here that you see with the students and with colleagues and stuff. These, these are not mental illnesses per se, but they're actually issues of performance in neoliberal environment. What you said did remind me of uh, the fact that for Emil Kriplin, uh, one of the primary indicators of dementia precox was the fact that this person does not want to work and we can't have that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this this is the conservative nature of um, psychiatry going back to its birth. You've kind of written that side disciplines have provided a lot of pseudoscientific evidence to support neoliberal capitalism. And in turn, they turn social problems into individual problems and social issues into individual deficits. I wanted to know more about this pseudoscientific evidence and, you know, this way of turning social problems into individual issues. Part of this is the um, uh, what I just mentioned there, the really uh, conservative nature of psychiatry throughout its history. Of course, it reflects wider society. When we say wider society, that's not kind of everybody. That's actually, in my view, looking at capitalism, that's actually um, a struggle between uh, the workers and the owners and the means of production, it's actually about reflecting the dominant norms and values of that society, particularly as being you know, a profession that I think continues to be dominated by generally white middle-class men. So in a way, they are a profession that are, again, the, uh, the lackeys of, uh, of capitalism. Looking at gender, uh, in particular, in this case, gender inequalities, thinking of patriarchal power uh, and the roles of women and men uh, within the society. In other words, uh, we're looking at the socio-political issues here of uh, sexism, of, um, of discrimination in all areas of life, uh, of partner violence, uh, of poverty, of compulsory heteronormativity and thinking about why actually there'd be a psychiatric discourse that would want to promote these ideas well as lots of critical feminist scholars have uh, signposted and uh, i've argued myself with rihanna hartman in our recent article um is really um, to enforce uh, patriarchal capitalism. That is basically to ha to keep women as second-class citizens for reasons of both um, uh, service in the economy as unpaid labour, uh, often uh, in low-wage jobs, as well as uh, still taking the majority of the housework, uh, as well as importantly reproducing the uh, the future labour force here. Uh, myself and uh, Rihanna in our article, um, we've referred to this increased focus um, over time on women's roles uh, by psychiatry. We've called this the feminization of the DSM. We've uh, found, along with other scholars, that there has been an increase in the number of mental illnesses um, that are really uh, gender biased in the direction of women. The, such as, for instance, going back to 1980, there's a histrionic personality disorder. We see borderline personality disorder, which is being used concerningly quite a lot uh, for women nowadays. Body dysmorphic disorder, female sexual arousal disorder, gender identity disorder, um, female orgasmic disorder, binge eating. PMDD. 
Yes, exactly. Premenstrual dysphoric disorder, you're spot on. Yeah, so, uh, you know, feminist scholars have talked about this as basically these are uh, feminized categories that are connected to prevailing moralities and norms regarding gender, sexual expression, the gender order, and heteronormativity. So just taking PMDD, that's premenstrual dysphoric disorder that you mentioned, as our example, So these symptoms you might know uh, include uh, a lack of energy, uh, specific food cravings, physical symptoms such as breast tenderness or swelling, joint or muscle pain, sensation of bloating, weight gain, and so on. Uh, Yes, uh, you might be thinking this is actually the medicalization of menses. Uh, Yeah, and you'd be right. So the DSM states that the symptoms of PMDD then are associated with clinically significant distress or interference with work, with school, with the usual social activities or with relationships with others. So there's an avoidance, they say, in the latest uh, DSM of social activities. There's a decreased, they say, productivity and efficiency at work, school and the home. So we agree, myself and Rihanna, with feminist scholars who have argued that PMDD, what this actually is, um, is a pathologization of women as being victims of their own biology. And hey, this is not the first time it's happened. It's 200 years of history, uh, basically, and uh, a lot of that by psychiatry in, in this case, you know, that women are subject to raging hormones. Uh, therefore, it kind of functions to legitimize traditional constructions of femininity. And also, to uh, importantly, to restrict women's access to equal opportunities. And that includes, um, scholars have, have stated, uh, taking up senior professional and public positions. We argue um, that PMDD then, is, uh, it cautions, this diagnosis cautions women not to place their work responsibilities above the family responsibilities. So that's also captured in uh, contemporary advertisements, for instance, that people might have seen for Sarafem. This is a drug um, that's uh, uh, the preferred uh, recommendation for PMDD. Uh, You see these adverts in which women are, of course, homemakers. They are carers. They are represented as mothers and wives. However, they are not actually featured outside the domestic setting in these adverts. So I think PMDD is a classic example. And it's interesting, actually, that, um, you know, medicalization of menstruation has actually happened for the last hundred years through different diagnoses and forms within medicine. And this really happens when there's an anxiety, a patriarchal anxiety about women gaining power, uh, particularly outside the household. You know, it happened, for instance, after the First World War and the Second World War, when women, of course, had to go into the work, be part of the workforce, etc. And then men come back and they want their jobs back. And then we find this discourse again kind of being produced. Thank you for, for that. So um, I really wanted to know about your upcoming book, Selling Mental Health. And I know you're still writing it and everything, but you have written that the mental health discourse, it appears more benign than, let's say, the mental illness discourse, Right. But it's just as insidious. It's just kind of as dangerous. Could you tell us more? Yeah, I I think uh, as with the work of missionaries and anthropologists um, towards the colonial project, um, I think actually the mental health project, as I call it, uh, can be understood as the advanced troops of psychiatric hegemony, if you like. This is a way of actually proliferating, uh, actually, uh, the hegemony uh, into, uh, you know, these, these... areas of primitive accumulation uh, when actually, you know, we can, we can actually capture more and more people. Um, and I think that's what the mental health does very well is actually it, it, it captures all of us. Uh, you know, there's still a chance that hopefully some of us can escape the mental illness label um, despite the, those problematic statistics. I think the clever and simple phrase mental health actually captures us all in it. So, 
you know, in a way, mental illness is actually becoming a bit passe and is becoming less, I hope I'm not con contradicting myself, shooting myself in the foot of my previous argument, but uh, mental illness is being yet less used in public discourse as opposed to the, the phrase mental health, uh, which obviously has a more positive conversation, uh, more positive idea around it, to talk about mental health and issues and problems, uh, as we often do. Um, even though we actually have no idea what the hell it is we're talking about there, you know, we're just like, well, it's got to be a good thing. It's about our mental health. But, but you know, when you break that down, what the hell is that? Um, one thing it is, is it's really big business. The mental health business is big business. Uh, there's these taglines of no health without mental health and mental health is everybody's business. Uh, these have become commonplace. Um, and it's no longer unusual, I think, and this is the, the heart of my book, I guess, hopefully it is, um, to see workplaces holding mental health awareness sessions with employees or schools, instituting mindfulness classes for their students. Um, every disaster, crisis, national emergency, we've seen this with the war in Ukraine at the moment, this leads commentators and campaigners to say, we need more targeted mental health services and resources put into these areas. And even we have um, consumer products which are now sold to us from lifestyle magazines to sports equipment and maybe cars uh, on the basis that they are actually good for our mental health and well-being. So this the Selling Mental Health book actually continues this analysis about psychiatric hegemony, but through this concerted focus on promotion and the selling of the psychiatric discourse. This is together with obviously the profession, the professions legitimating their services and their products and their treatments and so forth, uh, and doing it under this beautiful umbrella, this metaphor of mental health. So I'm, I'm going to argue in this book that the utilization of mental health then uh, in public narratives, it's become a significant way that psych professionals can promote really the continued legitimacy of a biopsychiatric uh, discourse and those diagnoses that we've come to see as commonplace within society. And it's under the guise of it's all for our public health, it's all for our benefit. I mean, given that there are these cracks that have been appearing for the last decades in, in the biomedical models, you know, uh, proclamations, for example, the dopamine hypothesis is is all but kind of has been, you know, discarded. Uh, big psychiatrists coming out and saying, oh, we never said it was a chemical imbalance, which they did. Uh, and, you know, we're taking withdrawal a little more seriously, a little bit more seriously from psychiatric drugs. I wonder if, if switching from mental illness to mental health effectively neuters any, any kind of progress that we could make now that we are seeing in the cracks in the biomedical model, right? And people could begin to question that, uh, that maybe it's not all about a, an illness. Look at, look at the withdrawal, look at the adverse effects of psychiatric drugs. But the minute you start talking about it as mental health, it becomes, it's already, you know, an easier way to deal with it. And you can be like, oh, we don't have to call it an illness. It's, it's a more, you know, health-based thing. And Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think that that normalization that has happened very successful, but then the neutralization of uh, what remain really problematic uh, evidence base to begin with, uh, and then the kind of the problems of the supposed treatments for these things that we haven't proved exists, uh, and so forth. Yeah. We actually we move away from that discussion, like you say, uh, to actually let's let's just have a sensible discussion about our mental health. I don't know about where you guys are, but have you have you come across this um, saying that your well-being comes first? Many universities have taken up this mantle, and they so they're talking to us, the staff and the students of the university. So this is my this is my example. Um, our university has various platitudes like this during COVID, uh, with the staff losses we've had. You know, your well-being comes first here. 
our Faculty of Arts, this is where sociology is based um, at the university, we have um, a social and wellness committee uh, that was set up in 2018. It's established to help foster, it says, a positive workplace culture and environment that promotes staff wellness. That's both physical and mental. Uh, and that is welcoming, inclusive and safe for all staff. All very well. Uh, and, and we've had loads of activities, you know, from the faculty come round. I mean, less during COVID, obviously. Um, but for instance, you know, there's the Auckland Bike Challenge. There's also the Auckland Walk Challenge, uh, where we get individual points uh, for commitment, endurance and social engagement. Um, there's obligatory fun runs. Uh, there's a boot camp class. You can get your oxygen flowing. This is for staff, yeah? We're always having kind of like the posters about, of course, Mental Health Awareness Week and things like that. This all sounds fun. However, th here's the wider context, and this is where it kind of gets political and it gets serious for me. My, myself and my colleagues uh, are basically uh, expected to do more and do more over time with less. And that's particularly been the time over the last couple of years. But I, I would say this goes back for a good five, eight years or something. Really, uh, five years ago, we lost um, uh, administrative staff across, across the university. We lost about uh, two to three in sociology. Uh, there was a, there's been a virtual freeze on new academic employments. We've lost about six staff. Even our tea room was taken away from us, you know, where we used to meet as a department and have tea and have a chat. That was taken away from us. The morale is not good, of course. And, you know, how, how can chair mass massages and stuff take away uh, the fundamental problems of institutional under-resourcing? You know, that would be better for our well-being. You know, my point is the these mental health um, initiatives in the workplaces have really been spread out uh, in quite a relentless way on the back of slogans like mental health is everybody's business, which is, which is the idea that you know, mental health is costing businesses a lot of money. So basically, the more you can aid the, uh, the mental health of your workers, uh, the more you know, productivity will go up. But uh, I've done a little bit of preliminary work on this, and I've published a little bit on this. There'll be more in the Selling Mental Health book. Um, but some review suggests that this is actually having, this is more of kind of like a, a surveillance uh, and social control uh, process than actually uh, about detection and treatment of, for employees with mental health issues. This, this has been the finding of a number of uh, surveys that have looked at workplace mental health guidelines. Um, and this is despite evidence that suggests, not surprisingly, that if you actually made your workplace more favorable for the employees, that would actually have a more positive effect on mental health outcomes. Um, but instead, it's about detection and treatment. Um, so you have this focus on basically individuals rather than organizations. And I think that's more than just by chance. National documents uh, that make a business case for promoting mental health programs, uh, they're often quite explicit, interesting enough, on the need to develop more proactive forms of surveillance and the detection of at-risk employees, in inverted commas. Uh, you know, I looked at a... Uh, uh, one report from Canada, Mental Health and Labour Force. This is talking about collecting benchmark data on worker disabilities, compensation claims, absenteeism, and the rates of product productivity. And they're saying what this benchmark data can reveal is actually, quote, opportunities for identification of high-cost, high-risk employees high-cost, high-risk employees. Another um, report was done in Australia for the Australian government. And, you know, that actually suggests more explicitly actually involvement of employees themselves in surveillance measures. So they say, why don't you administer a survey to all the workers within an organisation? And then the survey can be used to assess a number of measures, including job control, health, absence and acceptance. 
So there's some there's some concluding points from Wipond and Jacobek's uh, recent work in North America, where they've looked at workplace uh, mental health initiatives. And what they say they say what this is really about is three things. First of all coercive practices which actually force workers to self-label as being mental disordered. So often these programs are mandated for workers to attend and they're couched in terms of expectations for the employees to be mentally well at all times. Um, Secondly, it's the reframing of workplace conflicts as being personal issues, very importantly. So structural issues within the organization, such as typically bullying and what I mentioned there, downsizing, like at our university, these are individualized through mental health initiatives. And rather, there's a concentration then on the employee and their emotional reactions and need for personal adjustment. There's some great examples where basically they have one of these sessions because they're just about to tell all these employees they're going to be sacked. The, the third issue uh, mentioned by the researchers then is what we see here is an increased use of diagnostic labels and discriminatory behavior against those who are labeled as mentally ill within the workplace. For the employer as well, it actually avoids the focus, of course, on power imbalances and structural issues of the work environment. Instead, you know, we can medicalize workers as at risk of you know, biological or psychological issues. You know, with the with the end of the scholars' research here, one mental health initiative expert in the study states, you know, quite often what we have found in these cases is that these are issues related to conflicts in the workplace. An employee having a conflict with a manager or their supervisor. And despite uh, what the researchers also found is despite arguments for mental health workplace programs as being positive and leading to accommodations for workers who might have mental health problems in those organizations, actually the employees are usually uh, severanced out. You know, it's easier to write a check if they uh, turn out to be have mental health problems and to be an ongoing issue. Write a check, severance them out. So what these programs seem to be about, as far as we can tell from not much critical research has been done so far, is it's really um, a case of surveying, pinpointing who's got mental health issues, getting rid of them, and uh, making sure that the other employees know that they have to be mentally well and productive at all times. All right. On that very sinister note, I think... I think we are, we've covered our questions. We're done with our time. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.